We'll be seated, if you will, open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we've been uh, looking at Christian liberty as it's been brought to us through 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. And just by way of very brief reminder, chapter 8 is what established the principle for us, which we see in verse 9, but take care that this liberty of yours does not have become a stumbling block to the weak. So our liberty is to be exercised in love for the brethren, for our spiritual family, doing our very best to not cause our spiritual family to stumble, either by violating their conscience or by tempting them to return to their former way of life. Now, as this is uh, made relevant to us through the Corinthian problem, eating food sacrificed to idols, that was a big challenge for the people of that day who associated idol worship as something that was a part of their past, something that they were naturally drawn back to. They didn't want to go that way and to see individuals that they respected and trusted in the faith doing those things violated their conscience and caused them to wonder, was it really such a big deal? So there's this challenge in thinking what is best for those around us, denying ourselves, and this is something that is foreign to us in our natural position, but it is what the Word teaches us to do as a part of our growth in Christ and our willingness to love the brethren more than we love our own individual rights. So in chapter 9, Paul illustrates this principle. He's given up his rights for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of those that he ministers to. He's done this by refusing monetary compensation, even though he was entitled to that. He denied himself companionship through a spouse that all the other disciples, all the other apostles enjoyed. He was willing to work and support himself, which only he and Barnabas did. He never ever wanted to be accused of being a preacher for hire, only willing to come if you'll pay me, and only willing to stay as long as the money is there. And so Paul says that he will continue to pursue the reward, which is his ability to offer a free gospel to all, so that he can win some, whether they be Jew or Gentile. And that is how Paul would summarize his life. I am here to win the lost. And in doing that, I will submit myself to the culture that I am in, as I minister to these people without violating God's moral law, so that I can win the lost to Christ. So in these final four verses that we're going to see here in chapter 9, it's what I consider to be a fairly classic passage of Scripture. It is often quoted, it is often taught, but I don't know that it's often taught in context of Christian liberty, which Paul is illustrating through the commitment that he has made, and Paul describes to us how he chooses to live his life and denying his own rights out of love for the brethren in order to be able to win the law. So let's see what we find find here in verse 23 is a bit of a segue to this final section. And this segue will also be the introduction to what will be the application of the principle as we examine the history of Israel. So what Paul says in 23 as a part of the segue is, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So Paul illustrates the commitment it takes to his life 
to be lived this way, and he does so using this classic example of an athletic analogy. And some of you will just kind of roll your eyes. Another athletic analogy. I could gag on these things. But this was prominent in Paul's day. It was prominent in the Corinthian culture. And if you don't think that sports is a prominent thing in our culture today, I don't know what you've been looking at. (laughs) I don't know what you've been listening to. Who are the greatest role models? Who are the greatest individuals that we aspire to become like? And it's athletes. It's it's crazy, but that's what it is. So let's read our our final four verses in chapter 9 as we look at this uh, final section in the illustration of Christian liberty. Do you not know? This is the last of the do you not knows in this passage, assuming Paul understands that they assume what he's going to say is true. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified." So, we're going to see here the final piece of this principle illustrated, and this, as we pick up in our continuing outline, number five, this principle illustrated requires proper commitment. If you are going to set aside your individual liberties and freedoms as a Christian out of love for the brethren, and if you're going to live your life so that the lost can know the truth of the gospel message, we must have a proper commitment to do that. Paul begins this illustration by saying, we all run the race. Verse 24a, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? So, Paul is picking up on the important and widely known Isthmian Games. It's a very difficult word to say. Isthmian Games. So, the Roman culture recognized two games. The Olympic Games, which still take place in our world today, and these Isthmian Games, which were held each year in the city of Corinth. They were the host to this games. And so those who competed in these games had to prove themselves with rigorous training for ten months. The last month of their training was spent in the city of Corinth. It was under close supervision, and the athletes who wanted to participate in the games were required to undergo supervised workouts in the gymnasium and on the athletic fields. So you couldn't just show up and say, here I am, I want to race, just like in our culture today. If you want to run in the Olympics, you've got to go to the Olympic trials. To do that, you have to be the best in your individual team. You can't just show up and say, I want to run in the race. So all those who enter the race have trained long and they've trained hard and they show up ready to run the race. When they show up on race day... There's not a single one of them that props up their lazy boy and reclines back and says, I'm here for the race. It's going to be a great show. I can't wait. 
When they show up on race day, they are ready to run, and they are fully prepared to run. They're not feasting on food. They're not busy texting and doing all of their daily activities. It's race day, and they are there to run, and they're going to run with the intention of winning. And even though there are numerous participants in the race, they understand, verse 24b, only one receives the prize. So in these races, just like in our modern races, there is only one that can win. But unlike those games, in this race, each of us can win. Verse 24c, run in such a way that you may win. So our approach to the race that we are in is to be this, I want to win my race. But we also have to understand that in this race, we each have the ability to win the race that we were entered into on the day of our salvation. Who signed up to be in the race? I didn't know there was a race when I got saved. I never would have understood such a thing. What do you mean I'm in a race? What are you talking about? I just know I'm lost and I want to have Jesus as my Savior. What are you talking about a race? Well, the day of our salvation, we have entered the race that all Christians are expected to run and we are to run this race in an effort that proves that we want to win. Now, unlike a game or a race in the Olympics or in these Isthmian games, we aren't competing against one another. We each have our own individual race that we run, and we compete against the obstacles that are going to interfere with our particular race. Whether those, be, whether those be physical challenges, whether they're spiritual obstacles or challenges, or whether they're just practical challenges. How many times have you yourself said, or you have heard someone say, well, I would really love to serve the Lord that way, but... I'm too tired, I'm too old, I'm too busy, I'm too unprepared, I don't understand, I really just don't want to. And so we aren't, we aren't competing against one another, we're competing against the obstacles that exist in our particular race that will be a discouragement to us in running our race to win. When we run to win... We will willingly set aside those things that hinder us from our willingness to do what God has called us to do and share the gospel with other people. You know, we're in the process of formulating this evangelism team. And come the fall, this evangelism and outreach team is going to begin to put activities in front of our church with the hope and the expectation that we together are going to join ourselves in exposing who we are as a church to the community that is out there. And some of us, when that opportunity is presented, we're going to say, oh, I don't know, that sounds like that's going to be really out of my comfort zone. And I'm not really sure how somebody's going to respond to that. And what if people say bad things to me or bad things about me? And I think I'm going to be busy that day. In fact, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be busy that day. 
I'm going to make sure that I'm busy that day. And so we allow obstacles to pop up into our lives that will prevent us from our preparation and willingness to share the gospel with other people. Now, in context of what Paul is talking about here, our holding tightly to our Christian liberties or our Christian freedoms will negatively impact our ability to run the race to win. So in Paul's explanation, running the race to win means that you deny yourself your liberties and your freedoms out of love for the brethren in the hopes that you can win some who are lost. And so we have to fight with those struggles, what we perceive to be our own Christian liberties, which, by the way, tend to be an exaggeration, lived out in license to do whatever I want to do. And I don't have to do those things because I'm free not to do those things. But if we hold tightly to our liberties, then it will potentially have a negative impact on our ability to run the race to win. So in the setting that Paul is dealing with, many of the Corinthian Christians seriously limited their testimony because they would not limit the exercise of their liberties. They refused to give up their rights, and in doing so, they won few but offended many. Think about that. Would you want it to be said of you that you were your own person, yet you offended more people than you won to the Lord? You created barriers to the gospel message rather than taking those barriers down. Well, gee, I would never want that to be said about me. Do we ever wonder if that's the experience If that's the reality from the life that we live as we exercise our liberties and our freedoms, as we choose to live our lives, as we desire, here's the principle that I don't think we really get, is this. Christianity is not to be lived in a vacuum. God did not save you because heaven needed a few more people. He didn't save you just because it would be a benefit to your life. We are saved and we are expected to live the Christian life for the benefit of those around us that God chooses to use us to draw into His kingdom. Have you thought about that? Your Christianity is not to be lived in a vacuum for you, yourself, alone, Your Christianity, my Christianity, is to be lived in such a way that others see the impact that Christ has made in our lives. So a life that is lived with the intent of winning the race must exercise self-control. This is what he says in verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control In all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So again, Paul is drawing on the self-control that is required for athletes who want to excel in their competition. If an athlete expects to excel, he voluntarily and often severely restricts his personal liberties and his personal freedoms. How does he do that? Well, his sleep, his diet, and his exercise are not determined by his rights or by his feelings, but by the requirements of his training. Think about that. 
You will not find many world-class athletes who sleep late in the morning and burn the midnight oil in the evening and eat a sloppy diet and exercise when they feel like it, when they can get around to it. No, what they do is they organize the entirety of their life around this goal to win. And we often have no idea of the kind of sacrifice that individuals make in order to excel in their chosen field. So athletes that compete with serious intentions will train rigorously for years, often at considerable expense, exercising strict self-control so they can compete at the highest level because they want to win. Now, in these Isthmian games, like the Olympic games of the day, they received a perishable pine Wreath. Now, the wreath had little value at all, but it, rep- it represented so much more. It represented success and accomplishment and acclaim. It was ticket to fame and the culture, much like a gold medal would be. And so while all of those things are important in the worldly scheme of things, they are temporary. But we as Christians compete for something that isn't temporary. It is, in fact, called imperishable. Here's what it says in 2 Timothy 4.8. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The crown of righteousness, not a pine wreath that's going to lose all of its needles, and disintegrate through drying out in our atmosphere. In 1 Peter 1.4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. So here's the picture image. Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, is waiting for us to enter into heaven so that He can give to us this imperishable crown of righteousness that will last forever and forever. It'll be a part of our eternal experience. These individuals that Paul is making an analogy from have sacrificed huge portions of their life in order to excel in a foot race or a wrestling match, or a swim meet, or something else. And they do it for the temporary acclaim that will be theirs. And you and I are expected to compete with that same kind of sacrifice for a crown of righteousness that will never, ever perish. Without self-control, our intentions of winning our individual Christian race will never be realized. So if an athlete is willing to exercise such strict self-control for something perishable, how much more willing should Christians be for something imperishable? Doesn't it kind of seem like a, uh, gee, there's no comparison to that at all. Well, the self-control requires a proper focus. Verse 26, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. So the same discipline required to excel in athletics or music or business or any other field of study in life, that same discipline is required if we are going to excel 
in Christian living. Without a proper focus, we will run this race with no real goal in sight. We will just run. Think about it like this. I don't know if you've ever watched track and field events. But when you line up on the track to run, you've got a lane. And you've got to stay in that lane. And there is a line that's up there in front of you that is the goal. And if you just run without aim out of your lane, you get disqualified. If you don't run for the goal, then you're running with no purpose. You're just out there for a, for a stroll. And it really doesn't accomplish anything. So there must be a proper focus. And for Paul, his focus was winning the lost. He would do whatever it took to win the ability to preach the gospel to those who are perishing. And this requires discipline. This is an extension of the self-control, but it's emphatically explained to us in this way. Beginning in verse 20. Paul says, But I discipline my body and make it my slave. Self-control with focus and discipline will always lead to success in Christian living. We would do well to ask ourselves regularly this question. What am I accomplishing for the cause of Christ? How can I be more effective in running my race? Without this focus and discipline, without asking ourselves these questions, the probability is that we will just be running with no real purpose to the run. We'll just be out there breaking a sweat with no real purpose or goal in mind. Now here's the, here's the bottom line, and I'm, I'm preaching as much to myself today as I am anybody else, and here, here's, here's the deal. Most people, including Christians, are slaves to their bodies. Most of us are slaves to our bodies. Think about it like this. Our bodies tell our minds what to do. Our bodies decide when to eat. Our desires decide what to eat. Our desires decide how much to eat. When to sleep, when to get up, and so forth and so on and so on. And what happens to a life that exerts no self-control and has no focus and no disciplines is this. We will become a slave to our bodies. An athlete can never allow that to take place. He must follow the training regimen not his body's desires, because if he gives in to his body's desires, he will never excel in competition. I remember in college, I, I, I've always had this fascination for piano. I just love piano. And so in college, I had to take some electives, and I thought, oh, I'm going to take piano. So I took two semesters of piano. And by all accounts, I did fairly well. But there came a point where it became really difficult and really challenging and it's when two hands are doing two different things in two different times. It's kind of like when you pat your head and rub your belly. It's kind of hard to do that because they both start patting or they both start swirling. It's really hard to make that distinction. But I recognize that if I really, really wanted to be a pianist, then I was going to have to deny something in my life and grind through piano. Guess what? <laughs> I can't play piano. 
because I didn't have the discipline and the focus to learn the instrument. You know, Lorraine does a fabulous job playing the piano. But she never could have done that had there not been a point in her life where she forced herself to work through the difficulties that are inherent in any musical instrument. Now, I would I would hope that Lorraine would agree that the more she has been playing, the better and better she gets. And that's the part of becoming disciplined in what we do. We become better at it. So if we want to be more effective in running our race, we have to have self-control, we have to have focus, and we have to discipline our body so that we are not a slave to our desires. So an athlete would rather be resting, but he runs. He would rather eat fast food and snacks, but instead he eats a balanced meal. He would rather stay up late and watch his favorite shows, but he goes to bed early and he gets up early so he can run and train and be prepared. And he does so even when he would rather hit the snooze button. An athlete leads his body. He does not follow it. The body is his slave. He will never be a slave to his body. This is the same approach that we must take in exercising self-control with proper aim and proper focus. Now think about this. How many of you remember an athlete that you admired in their prime? You remember kind of what they looked like. But they were just the epitome of what a physical specimen would be. Well, when they got out of competition... 10, 20, 30 years later. What? Guess what? They don't look anything like they used to. Why? Because they don't exercise self-control or focus or discipline. So for most of us, when we are saved, we're on fire for the Lord. God is good. He's done this great thing for me. And I want to share this with others. And it lasts six months, a year, maybe two years. And things happen and things change. And we find ourselves 10, 20, 30 years in the faith. And we don't have the same discipline, the same control, the same focus. And we go, eh, somebody else is going to do that for me. I don't have to anymore. I'm out of shape. I'm getting old. I'm too busy. I'm too tired. Whatever the thing might be. And so we fight our obstacles to run the race to win for a crown that is imperishable. So as a way of applying this, three areas that we must control if we are going to have self-control with proper focus and discipline. And this is where we really start stomping on the toes, myself included. Letter A, we must control our desires. If we don't control our desires, then guess what? Our desires are going to control us. We must be aware of how our natural desires interfere with our Christian living. Galatians 5, 16 and 17, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So here's the deal. Walking by the flesh comes naturally and requires absolutely no effort. When you get up in the morning, you are inclined to walk in the flesh 
until you decide, I'm not going to walk by the flesh today. I am instead going to walk by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is intentional, and it requires a denial of the flesh. So here's what we do. We say, okay... Tomorrow's a new day. It's Monday. It's January 1st. It's my birthday. It's whatever it might be. I'm going to start a new plan today. I'm going to get up an hour earlier, and I'm going to spend time in God's Word, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to do all the things that I'm supposed to do. And that hour comes, and the buzzer on the alarm clock goes off, and you go, not today, click, hit the snooze. I don't feel good. My head hurts. And I got to bed late. And it was a real restless sleep. And I got up twice in the middle of the night to go to the restroom. And I'll start tomorrow. I'll start tomorrow. And this is the way it goes. So God's control of our life is determined in part by us. By our willingness to deny our natural desires for spiritual ones. Letter B, we must control our minds. Fleshly living is natural. It takes no effort at all. But spirit living is an intentional decision that we are going to make by focusing on the right things. This is not something that we are always aware that needs an adjustment. Because our minds just think. They just kind of are wired to go to a certain place of default. And we have to train our minds to not go to that place. So it becomes an intentional decision that we make to not be controlled by the fleshly mind that thinks about my rights, my liberties, my desires, whatever those things might be. Here's an example we see in Romans 8, 5 through 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, you, you may get up and say, well, you know, I've got to get an early start on the day. I've got all these meetings planned for. I've got these clients I've got to contact. I've got to do all these things. I've got to go all these places. I've got a long list ahead of me. God understands. I'm focused on these things. I've got to do my job well. And when we come home from a long day like that, we go, man, I'm too tired to read. I'm too tired to pray. I'm too tired to study. I'll get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. 6 o'clock rolls around. Hit the snooze. It was a long day. I need some extra sleep today. And the cycle just continues. So if we don't set our mind to running the race, if we don't set our mind to running the race, then we won't. We'll get to the race and we'll pull out the lawn chair and we'll say, well, I'm here to watch. Look at those guys go. Man, they're really good. So, have you ever battled over exercise? It's a Monday, I'm going to start a new regiment. It's a new month, it's whatever that might be. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to start today. Have you ever battled over exercise? Have you ever battled over diet? Have you ever battled other, over other areas of self-control? 
Sure, we have. We're all, we're all familiar with that, aren't we? We have to set our minds. We have to make our body and our mind be a slave to our spiritual desires. And if we don't set our mind to that, we won't. Success requires controlling what our minds are fixated on. Let us see. We must control our training. Luke 9.23, Jesus was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now wait, 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 wait. I thought this was God of love, free grace, save me from my sin, bless me with heaven. Isn't that what the gospel is really all about? What did Jesus say when he said, if any of you wants to be my disciple, this is what it takes. I don't think any of us understood that at the day of our salvation. And so what we learn progressively through our Christian life is this. I just can't do what I want to do if I want to be the kind of disciple that Jesus is pleased with because Jesus said, hey, if you want to be my follower, then you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross and follow me daily. Three elements of our spiritual training, which is a further explanation of this self-control that we just looked at. Very quickly, we're going to finish this up. Letter A, spiritual food. We must read the Word. If we don't read the Word, we will never understand with any greater completeness the great God that has chosen to save us. We will never understand what God wants for us. We'll never understand how God prepares us for what He wants from us. We'll never understand the richness of the blessing that is ours in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Oh my goodness. Here's what it says when we talk about spiritual food, reading the Word. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You know what this means? It means that in our individual race, which God has prepared for us, Scripture is going to be incredibly necessary so that we can run the race in the right way, with the right goals, with the right empowerment, seeing the right result. Apart from that, we're just going to wander aimlessly through this life and we're going to stand before God and we're going to go, I didn't know. Romans 12.2 And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So if we want proper control and focus and discipline, we must, we must feast on the Word of God. Letter B, or I-I actually, spiritual rest, meaning we must pray. We have to have spiritual food. We have to have spiritual rest. And now, these things that 
we're going to look at in Scripture that Paul prays for don't necessarily equal to rest, but what they do is they equal to our ability to rest in God for what it is He desires to accomplish through our life. Ephesians three fourteen through 19 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He will grant you and me, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So when you're getting wrung out in the world, or you're getting wrung out in your service to the Lord, we find rest in being deeply entrenched in the height and width and breadth and length of the love of God in which we firmly rest ourselves. Philippians 1, 9-11 And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What Paul prays for us here will radically change our lives if we will exercise the proper control and focus and discipline, feasting on the Word, controlling our minds and our desires in such a way that He is first and foremost in our lives. Lastly, and letter C here, spiritual exercise in serving the Lord. You know, I, I know a lot of um, I know a lot of Christians. I've known a lot of Christians in my life who have a great wealth of knowledge, a great wealth of maturity, but they're just like a sopping wet sponge that needs to be wrung out into the world that needs to know all that they know so that there's an impact in the kingdom of God. So if we're going to have spiritual exercise, we're going to serve the Lord. Spiritual food, spiritual rest, spiritual exercise. 1 Corinthians 15.58 Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That means whatever you do in your service to the Lord is not in vain, even if you never see a result from that. We can never look back at the preaching ministry of Isaiah or Jer- of Isaiah or Jeremiah and say, "Man, what utter failures!" The nation never repented. They were absolutely faithful to what God had called them to do. They were consistent in serving the Lord, regardless of the obstacles that they faced. Now, let's be real honest with ourselves. Our race is hard. It's uphill. It's end of the wind. It's snowing and it's raining. And there doesn't ever appear to be a downhill portion of this. The crowd is jeering us instead of cheering us on. Nevertheless, we must run. Look how this little passage of Scripture ends. Verse 27b, Paul's warning about disqualification. Paul says, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So here's how it worked in the Isthmian games that were annually held in Corinth. If an athlete showed up and could not successfully complete 
the supervised trainings in the athletic fields or in the gymnasium, they were declared disqualified. That word disqualified means not approved. And so what would happen is if you showed up and you wanted to run the race and they put you through all of this training regimen to determine your qualifications, your ability, they would say, you're not approved, you're disqualified, you're not even allowed to run, let alone be able to win. Paul says, I don't want to exercise my Christian liberty or my Christian freedom in such a way that I might be disqualified from sharing the good news with other people. How often do we think about how we live our lives in potentially being a disqualification from someone else hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think one of the more disappointing reactions that one might receive when they try to share the gospel with someone is, you are going to tell me about Christianity? Really? You're a Christian? I never would have known that. Never would have guessed. That'd be a tragedy, wouldn't it? Well, running the race is hard. And the reality is we're never too old. We're never too tired. We're really never too busy. But we must choose to run because of the one who entered us into the race as his ambassador to make a difference in the world in which we live. Well, the world won't cheer us on, but I'll tell you this um, God does. And there's some misunderstandings about this verse I'm going to close with, but it gives us a good visual way to close this. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, of faith. Now, I don't believe that heaven is actually up there cheering us on, but we have all of the saints of old who have been a model of what it means to lay, a lot, lay aside all of what the world has to offer for the purpose of pursuing Him. God is our audience. God is the one that sees it. God is the one that encourages us and strengthens us and motivates us. And God is the one who will cheer us on as we seek after Him in His Word, as we lay ourselves low before Him in prayer, and as we commit to serving Him. God will be your greatest champion for your success. Would you pray with me, please?